you, my friend. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we're going to pick up in verse 22 this morning in just a second. It is nice to be back with you. I also am bursting through the sleeves of my shirt this morning, so that's exciting. Uh, Not quite in the same way that Aaron was doing, but whatever. It's fine. Um, We're in the midst of a three-week sort of discussion about uncommon joy. You guys have been studying and talking about generosity, and if you were with us last week, we talked about the joy of the branch. That there's great joy in the branch based on John 15, a teaching of Jesus. There's joy for the branch in recognizing that everything it needs, everything we need to produce fruit will be provided by Christ, the vine, and that we'll be pruned and disciplined by the Father's plan and his love for us. All we have to do is remain actively still in him. And when that happens, then fruit will be produced. It's evidence of our discipleship for the good of other people and more importantly, for the glory of God. This morning, this, we're going to continue this conversation about uncommon joy, places in the Bible where joy is detailed, but it's not joy in the way the world tells us to pursue joy or joy that we typically see. This morning, we're going to talk about the joy of the best man out of John 3. By the way, this is uh, probably my favorite speech. No, it definitely is my favorite speech in all of the Bible. And uh, here, here's what we find. This is John 3, starting in verse 22. It says this, speaking about John the Baptist, it says, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Would you pray with me as we begin this morning? God, we thank you for your word. We want to continue our worship of you this morning through the study of your word, but we don't want to just study it from an academic place, God. We don't just want to know what the words on the page say. We don't just want to understand what was happening here historically. We want to hear your voice. We're desperate for you to speak into our lives, God, because it is only through your guidance and direction, through the power of your spirit in conjunction with your word that our lives can be transformed And so we pray that you would glorify yourself in this place this morning as we study your word, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to take these words and understand not only what was being said, but how it relates to the lives you called us to live. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's incredible to me the places where competition springs up. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of weird. I, I worked at Hume Lake for about nine years, and uh, we do a thing at Hume Lake at the end of the week of camp called Victory Circle. Some of you have been to Hume, or if you've been to summer camp, you probably are familiar with the practice. It's like, a, um, it's like a testimony time. We have a big bonfire, and we get all the kids around at the end of the week, and they, they, they encourage the kids, hey, share a little bit about what God has done in your life during the week. But there's kind of an interesting phenomenon that happens at Victory Circle, specifically with like 
younger kids, middle school, sometimes whatever, there's a sort of a weird spirit of competition that, that springs up there. I don't know if you've ever seen this or witnessed it, but you'll have like, you'll have like a little kid that will stand up and go, well, I just want to thank God for the ways my life has been changed this week. You know, I've had a really hard year. I've been arguing with my parents a lot, but God has really shown me that I should be more loving. And you know, people will clap and he sits down, you know, and the next kid stands up and he goes, yeah, I've, I also have had a hard year. You know, um, God's really helped me this week, but, but I, my parents hate me. You know, they hate me. They never want to speak to me. You know, we're like, wow, that's intense. You know, but he's like, I'm going to give it a good shot. You know, and he sits down and each kid, you know, sort of feels the pressure to have like a more dramatic story. So the next kid stands up and goes, well, I just want to say God's really helped me this week uh, because my, my parents were murdered by robots and uh, none of us saw that coming, you know, but it happens. Technology, what are you going to do? You know, but God's going to help me get through it. You know, we're like, really? Wow. Next kid stands up like, I didn't even have any parents. I was birthed from an egg, you know, and you're like that can't be true, you know? But as the testimony time goes on, there's just like this pressure inside of us to go, I gotta have the best story. I gotta have the most dramatic story. I've gotta, I gotta best the people around me. And there's no need for that kind of competition in a victory circle because what are we doing there? We're, we're just celebrating the ways God has worked in our lives and it doesn't have to be us against them. You know what I'm saying? I find it extraordinary in John chapter three, the way that competition sort of rears its ugly head. We see John the Baptist in the wilderness where he'd been baptizing people. I mean, after all, he was called John the Baptist, right? He'd been baptizing people and he had disciples of his own that were following him. They were baptizing people for uh, the remission of, not for the remission of sin, but in confession of sin, for repentance of sin and in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And on this particular day, Jesus and his disciples have moved within range of uh, John the Baptist baptizing's place. And his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, kind of get frustrated by the fact that Jesus is sort of encroaching on their spot. You know, they've had a lot of people coming out to be baptized. And now all of a sudden, it kind of seems like their line is getting shorter and shorter. And all the people are going over there to get baptized by Jesus' disciples. And so we have this really interesting exchange where John the Baptist's disciples come to him in verse 26 and they say, well, they, they come to him and uh, I imagine it sounds, you know, something like this. They go, uh, you know, hey, rabbi, you know, the, the, guy you were, you, the guy you were talking about, the one you told us about, you know, the guy with the beard and the blue sash, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but the guy, he's over there on the other side of the river, our river, he's over there and he's baptizing people and everybody's going over there to him. You know, we got to... We're going to have to step up our game. You know, we're going to have to print some coupons or something over here. We're going to have to do like a, a two-for-one Dunkin' special or something. We've got to get our people to come back over here and be baptized. I mean, he, he, there's a reason, you know, he's not called Jesus the Baptist because this was our thing first, you know. Now, I, I can't be totally sure that that's what their accent sounded like. I've taken some liberty with that representation. It's because I only know how to do two voices, so it's the, you're just stuck with that. But here's what they say literally in 26... Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, obviously, this is an exaggeration. We know that Jesus certainly had some people following him, but not all the people. But that's sometimes how it feels, isn't it? When somebody, you know, is sort of taking away your way of doing things or whatever, it can sort of feel like you're losing everything. And they say, all the people are going over there. We're not going to have anybody to baptize over here. What are we going to do? And John the Baptist gives the most beautiful speech. My favorite speech in all the Bible. You know, it's interesting. John the Baptist, he kind of gets a bum rap. You know, when people talk about John the Baptist, they go, oh, he's like a wild man. He lived down in the wilderness and he had crazy hair and he wore weird clothes and he ate bugs, you know. And it is, those things are all true about him. 
But I think it's so impressive that in response to the competition that they're feeling, the spirit of jealousy that his disciples are feeling, the response he gives is so eloquent. He basically speaks four sentences and they encapsulate a philosophy of ministry that is so beautiful and theologically sound. It's so deeply rooted that we all stand to learn something from John the Baptist, the guy who ate locusts. There is so much to be learned based on his philosophy that he responds to them. They go, hey, Jesus is stealing all our customers. And here's what John the Baptist says. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I love this speech. The first thing he says to them right out of the gate is he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. The first thing I want you to see this morning in this incredible speech by John the Baptist is that he declares his dependence. His dependence. He starts by looking at his disciples who were frustrated about the fact that they're losing some people in numbers and he goes, no, 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 listen guys, nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, look guys, the ministry we've had, the opportunity to to baptize people for confession of sin, repentance, the opportunities we've had with with our countrymen to baptize them in the river and, and to point them towards the coming Messiah, our chance to do that, our opportunity to do that incredible ministry was only ever happening and only ever possible because God gave us that ministry in the first place. And it's God's to do with what he wants. We'll be baptizing people here for as long as God allows us to do that, but the moment that God wants to reallocate ministry, he can certainly do so because it never happened because of us in the first place. Everything a man receives, he can't receive anything except that which he receives from heaven. John the Baptist is declaring clearly, the ministry we have or don't have is at the whim and the will of God. Everything we've done and everything we will do is dependent upon God's action on our behalf. He's dependent upon God for his ministry. But there's a flip side to what he's saying as well. It's kind of a a coin that has two sides on it. He's not only saying we are dependent upon God for whoever we're going to baptize or whatever kind of ministry we're going to have. But in addition, he's also demonstrating through that first statement the dependence of all mankind on the guy across the other side of the river, right? Jesus, the son of God infinite. He's baptizing. Actually, it says he's not baptizing. His disciples are baptizing. He's on the other side of the river. And part of what John is saying here, not only is he dependent, but he's demonstrating and illustrating the dependence of everyone on that guy. So in some ways, what John the Baptist is saying, it's actually better for the people that were over here being baptized by us. It's actually better for them to go across the river and be baptized by Jesus. If I had to choose between people being in contact with me or being in contact with the Son of God, the Messiah, I'd actually rather them be on that side of the river. It's better for them to be in contact with the Lord Jesus than it is to be in contact with me. He's dependent. He's dependent. It's funny, I I started doing some, uh, like, kind of hobby photography. You know, these days, if you buy a camera, like, the cameras are so good, you don't have to actually know what you're doing, and you can take good pictures, you know what I'm saying? It's just because the cameras are good. And so I've been taking some pictures just for fun, family vacations and whatever, and I've had people come to me, like, in the last year, and they go, hey, you know, my fiance and I, were getting married, we'd really like you to do the photography at our wedding. And I'm like, oh, no, you don't, right? You do not, you do not want me to do that. That is a big mistake, you know? And they're like, why? We've seen your Instagram. The pictures are good. And I'm like, 
are you joking with me? Like, this is your wedding. It's like the one wedding you're going to have. Like, you don't want some hack. You don't want some guy who's just like figuring out what the buttons do on his camera and happens to get a good picture every once in a while. Like, you should spend the money to go and get a pro to take your wedding photos. And I'm, I'm pushing them towards other people because I know that I can only offer them so much. And what I offer them isn't what's best. John the Baptist's disciples are all up in arms. They're kind of in a huff. What's happening? We're losing our people. They're going over there. And John the Baptist goes, time out, guys. If you actually care about these people, it's actually better for them to be connected with Jesus than it is to be connected with me. All I can do is dunk them in the water. All I can do is point them to the Messiah. All I can do is encourage them to confess their sin in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. But I can't offer them resurrection life. The only thing people need, they can get from heaven, from him, from the one who comes from heaven, right? Jesus is the source of resurrection life. Through his death and resurrection, by his grace, he extends to all of us who are dead in sin, resurrection life. And John the Baptist can't offer him that. And so he looks at his disciples who are frustrated and he says, no, 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 it's not about us, it's about him. It's always been about him. It's about Jesus. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter three. 1 Corinthians 3, one says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What's Paul demonstrating there? He's like, people are arguing about, you know, are they followers of Paul? Are they followers of Apollos? Why are we even talking about this? Life comes from Jesus and that's it. Anything Paul or Apollos did, we did because Jesus allowed us to do it. And it was all only an introduction to him. John the Baptist is demonstrating his dependence. And I think it's important for us to remember how dependent we are on the Lord Jesus for everything we have, for the ministry we have, for the life we have, for the life and breath that he's given to us. No one receives anything except that which he receives from heaven. And the people we come into contact with in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, the people we come into contact with, they don't need us. We simply serve as a conduit, an introduction to what they truly need, the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we get to a place where we start drawing people to ourselves, and John the Baptist wasn't having any of that. He wasn't having any of that. He didn't want their attention to be on him or what they were doing. He wanted their attention. I think in some ways, John the Baptist would almost say like, I'm kind of jealous of the people who were over there with Jesus. Like, instead of trying to figure out how to get more people on our side, why don't we tell them we're closed, let's all go over there, right? Because that's where the power is. The power is in the person of Christ. John the Baptist is dependent. He says, no one receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. Secondly, I want you to see this morning, back to John 3. Secondly, he says this in verse uh, 27 and 28. He says, a person cannot receive any, even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The second thing we see from John the Baptist, and this was true of his entire ministry, is that he's deflective. He's constantly redirecting people's attention away from himself. In fact, when he was questioned in John 1, in John 1 verse 20, they're questioning John the Baptist about who he is. He said in John 1 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. They said, are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist says in verse 23 of John 1, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist sees himself not as the Messiah, not as anybody of significance. He sees himself as kind of a flashing signpost or a pointing beacon, just routing people to Jesus. I think sometimes we make the mistake in our own lives of feeling like we're what's important. We need to, you know, sort of draw people to ourselves. I'm a, a soccer ref in Long Beach where I live. I've been refing soccer for like four years, and I get to meet a lot of my neighbors. I get to meet a lot of parents and coaches and other people, other refs. And there's sort of an interesting thing that happens where people get to know you and they go, man, you know, you seem like a nice guy. Where do you work? And I go, I'm a pastor over here at the church. And they start to kind of get attached to me. And they go, what church are you at? You know, well, I'm at Arbor Road Church. And they go, wow, you know, I really want to come to a church that has a pastor like you. And I'm like, that's not how you choose churches. We don't choose churches based on the guy that's leading them. We don't choose churches based on how dynamic or charismatic the people are that do the teaching or lead the worship. We choose churches based on where Jesus is present. And any church that draws people to a man is destined to fail. Why? Because every man is a sinner. We're all broken. And when we put our faith in men or we put our faith in women, when we start to draw ourselves to human beings like ourselves, then we're destined to be disappointed. John the Baptist is wise enough, and he's in good company scripturally. He's wise enough to go, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not what's important. That's what's important. He's deflective. He joins the company of guys like Joseph, who did that before Pharaoh. Remember that story? He joins guys like Peter in the New Testament in Acts, who was like, hey, it's not about me, but it's about Jesus. I love the story of Daniel, right? You know the story of Daniel? Daniel was one of the wise men that served Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel had a, uh, he, he had a, a sort of an interesting thing that happened. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, the king had had a dream, and uh, he, didn't, he was really troubled by it. And so he says to all of his wise men and his satraps and his prefects and his soothsayers and whatever, he goes, I want you to tell me the dream and I want you to tell me its interpretation. And all of the wise men were like, well, that's not how it works. You know, like you tell us the dream and we'll give you an interpretation. It's the same way that like palm readers and fortune tellers do it today. You tell them about yourself and they go, oh, I, yeah, you're going to be rich. That's going to happen. It's going right around the corner or whatever. They look at Nebuchadnezzar and they say, that's not how it works. We can't tell you your dream. We can't see inside your mind. You tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar goes, no, I can tell you guys are frauds. I can tell you're liars and fakes. I need to know the dream and its interpretation. And they say, there is no man who can do what you're asking. It's not possible. And he goes, great, kill all my wise men. Kill all the satraps, kill all the prefects, kill all the soothsayers, kill them all because they can't do what they say they're gonna do. So there's a day in Daniel where, uh, where the captain of the king's guard comes to Daniel's house and like knocks on the door. And Daniel opens it and he goes, hey, Daniel, what's up? Uh, I gotta stab you, sorry, I gotta kill you today because uh, Nebuchadnezzar's ticked off, nobody can do what he wants, so you gotta die, so sorry about this. Would you like me to, you wanna face me while I stab you or would you like to turn around and you want this to go down? And Daniel's like, wait a second, you don't have this, what, what's happening? And he says, well, the king had a dream and he wants to know the, the, the dream and the interpretation. Daniel says, let me talk to God. So the captain of the guard gives him some time, right? God reveals to Daniel both the dream and its interpretation, and then Daniel gets an audience before King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, by the way, King Nebuchadnezzar has already signed a death decree for all the wise men. Now, one of the guys that's supposed to be dead is standing in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 27, no, excuse me, 26, in, da in Daniel 20, 26 of chapter 2, the king says to Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now, here's the thing. Daniel knows the dream and its interpretation. 
So the correct answer, when you're facing a guy who literally holds your life in his hand, the correct answer is, yeah, I know it, right? I know it, I know it, don't stab me, I got, your, I got what you're looking for, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, do you know the dream and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no. Not a good first word, right? Wrong first word. Because he's taking a risk that in that moment that he says, no, I can't tell it to you, in that moment that Nebuchadnezzar just goes, you know, and kills him, right? Daniel says, almost verbatim, exactly what all the wise men had said the day before. Daniel says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Now, if you're Nebuchadnezzar, don't you go, what are you doing here then? Daniel says, nobody, no human being can show you this. Verse 28, but, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. What's Daniel doing? Why does he take his own life and risk his own life? Because it's important enough to him that Nebuchadnezzar not look at Daniel. He doesn't want Nebuchadnezzar to look at him and go, whoa, Daniel's awesome. He wants to deflect that attention onto God. And how often in our lives do we tend to draw people to ourselves? Do we tend to draw people to ourselves instead of deflecting their attention? John the Baptist says to his disciples, nobody receives anything except that which they receive from heaven. The ministry we've had, God gave that to us. And what's more, you yourselves testify to the fact that I'm not the Messiah, that I'm just the one who comes before him. He's dependent and deflective. And thirdly, we see in this text in John chapter three, he's dedicated, dedicated Look at what he says. He tells a little bit of a story here, John 3. John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He tells a little story. He goes, it's kind of like a wedding. He goes, I've told you that I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the best man. I'm the guy who stands to the side while the groom and the bride are joined together. And I find real joy in being the guy who stands to the side. Now, how many of you have ever been in a wedding? You ever been the best man? You ever been a bridesmaid or a maid of honor or any of those? That's, it's kind of a special honor, you know? Like when they ask you, it's kind of cool to be invited to play that role. They always go, oh, would you be my maid of honor? And by the way, you're gonna have to spend $900 on an ugly dress you'll never wear again. You have to fly all the way to Louisiana or whatever, and I'm not reimbursing you for that trip, but I can't wait to have you be my best man or whatever. There is some sacrifice involved in being the best man, but it is an honor nonetheless, right? It's an honor to stand to the side and watch while your friends have the most beautiful day of their life next to the day when they surrender their lives to Christ. This is second to that. Being married, what a joy. But can you imagine... If somebody had never seen a wedding, if they didn't understand the role of a best man, if they were kind of in the dark of that, and somehow they sort of got the impression that that the day was all about them, can you imagine if somebody showed up to a wedding to be the best man, and they thought the day was about them, they walk in and they go, what's up with these pink and white flowers? I don't like pink and white flowers, I like blue flowers. How come nobody got me blue flowers? Don't you know what I like? Why didn't anybody pay attention to me? They'd taste the cake. This isn't chocolate cake, I only like chocolate cake. What's this white cake doing here? I don't like this cream cheese frosting. Can you imagine what it would look like for the best man standing on the stage during the ceremony if the best man was under the impression that the whole thing was about themselves? What would happen? They'd be trying to get people's attention. Yeah, it's good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. But how come nobody's looking at me? What's going on? You know, how frustrated would they be that people are paying attention to the bride and groom, right? 
it would start to be really frustrating that, that things weren't done the way you wanted, that nobody was paying attention to you. It didn't seem like you were the center of attention at all. You'd lean in and try and kiss the bride, and they won't let you do it. <laughs> right? How frustrated do you have to be if you think you're the center? There are a lot of people in the church, a lot of people who are following Jesus, who've been given the false impression that Christianity and discipleship is all about them. And it's not entirely their fault, because sometimes the church has made the mistake of saying, oh, you know why we're here? I, there's actually churches in Long Beach that have signs on the side that say, we exist to meet your needs. I, I hope you guys don't have a sign like that on the side of your church. <laughs> I didn't check. Can I tell you something? The church does not exist to meet the needs of people. The church exists for the glory of God. And that's it, right? We glorify God through reaching out to people. We glorify God by serving others. Sometimes people's needs are met as a byproduct of pursuing the glory of God. But our motivation for all that happens inside this place is God's glory and God's glory alone. But when we get confused about that and we start to think it's all about us, then things get real frustrating. We come into church and we go, I don't like this carpet color in here. Why didn't they ask me what color I wanted the carpet? This music is too loud or it's too soft or it's too long or the preacher's too bald or whatever, right? <laughs> and how many times do we find people that feel like they're really frustrated and it's exactly the picture of the best man standing to the side and going, why isn't anybody paying attention to my desires? I like blue flowers. I like chocolate cake. And discipleship is not about what we want. It's about watching the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, be joined together with his bride, those who are lost in sin and dying, who are destined to be separated from him for eternity. Everything I do as a best man is about enjoying this coming together. Everything we do as disciples, as pastors, as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ is intended to draw people to Jesus, not to ourselves. He's dependent, he's deflective, and he's dedicated to the joy of someone else. There are a lot of Christians who are dedicated to their own joy, and it's because they've been falsely informed. David Wells famously says that the church has tried to market the gospel like, a, like the Gap markets a pair of pants, right? And they go, oh, it's comfortable, and everybody's wearing it, and you're going to love it. It doesn't cost very much. Like, you've you got to try these pants. We've said that with the gospel. Hey, everybody's following Jesus, it feels good, it doesn't cost very much, you're gonna love it, right? And the problem with marketing the gospel that way is that if the Gap ran a commercial on TV and stood up and go, hey, you wanna wear our new jeans? All you gotta do is die. <laughs> Nobody'd buy those jeans, y'all, right? Jesus says, you wanna be my disciple? Take up your cross and follow me. What was he talking about? Was he just talking about carrying crosses around? No, he's talking about death, dying to self. And there is joy. He says, I rejoice. My joy is now complete. Watching these people that were over here on our side of the river be joined to the Lord Jesus because I'm just the best man. This is the payoff for me when they meet him. And the payoff for us as disciples, the joy of the best man is in watching people who need the Lord Jesus meet him. What a great honor it is to be a part of that, but we're certainly not necessary or essential to it. We're certainly not necessary. John the Baptist is dependent. He's deflective. He's dedicated to the joy of someone else. And fourthly, I want you to see he's decreasing. Back to John chapter three. In John three, he says, 
A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And in verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. How many of you have heard that before? It's probably the most famous part of the speech, verse 30. But it kind of gets, gets used out of context. I think sometimes what happens with Christians is they go, he must increase, I must decrease. That's something I gotta do, you know? It's just like a thing that I wanna work to achieve. I just wanna make, make him famous, right? Can I tell you that what John the Baptist is saying here is not I need to make Jesus increase and I need to make myself decrease. What he's saying is that the natural order of things is such that he is given more and more and more glory, That he is being raised to a position, as it says in Philippians, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is an inevitable result of the story that God is writing. He will be glorified by every tongue, in every language, on every continent. And I don't have to make that happen. That's who he is. So what John the Baptist is saying is not I must make him bigger and I gotta sort of make myself smaller so I don't distract people. What he's saying is I'm becoming less and less relevant and Jesus is all that's important. Colossians 1 says that he would be preeminent in all things. Colossians 1 verse 18 says he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus will be exalted Not because we worked hard to make him exalted, but because that's who he is. Because he is God in heaven and there is no other. And there is joy for the best man in embracing my proper position. Revelation chapter 11, Revelation 11, 15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This isn't like a potential ending that could or might not happen depending on how we live. This is Jesus victorious because of who he is. And we get the opportunity to stand to the side and rejoice as he draws people to himself. My little, my little boy, Hank, he's 14 now, but when he was like three, I'd do this thing with Hank where I'd go, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we all do this as parents, right? You go, hey, what do you want to be as you, when you grow up? Because you're secretly hoping he's going to be like, I want to be just like you, dad, you know, or whatever. So I look at my kid, Hank, and I said, hey, hey Hank, what do you want to be when you grow up, man? Have you given that some thought? He goes, oh, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And I was like, what is it? What do you want to be? He goes, a moth. And I was like, bro, that's not going to, that's not going to work. You can't, like, that, you know, that's a, like a bug, right? Uh, I don't, you're never going to make that happen, dude. And he's like, uh, you know, and it kind of goes away. And he comes back like two weeks later and he goes, dad, I know it was stupid to say I want to be a moth. Like, what was I thinking? That's so dumb, you know? And I was like, okay. So I said, well, do you know what you want to be? He goes, yeah, I know exactly what I want to be when I grow up. And I was like, well, what, what do you want to be? He goes, a rainbow. <laughs> you know, like, look, come on, man. At least, you know, like the moth thing was like a little tougher or whatever, right? What? I don't want my son to set his sights on mothness. I don't want my son to set his sights on becoming a rainbow. Why? Because he'll be frustrated his whole life. He'll be frustrated his whole life if he sets his sights on something that is not possible. And for you and I, when we start to think that we're the center of the story, when we start to think that we are the center of the universe and everybody else is just revolving around us, 
We're destined to be frustrated. Are you frustrated this morning? Do you lack joy because you've been trying to get people to listen to you? Do you lack joy because you've been trying to get people to pay attention to you? I wonder if maybe the joy of the best man is what you've been missing, the, the mind of John the Baptist that would say, I get that people are going over there and I'm stoked about that because that's where Jesus is. He's dependent on Jesus for his own ministry and he recognizes that everyone he meets is dependent upon Jesus for life and breath. He's deflective. He's not drawing people to himself. He's not trying to big a, builder, a bigger and bigger John the Baptist ministry, right? At our church in Long Beach, we, we have a saying, people go, well, you know, we get that there's all these pastors, like who's the senior pastor of this church? We get up on our stage at our church in Long Beach and we go, this church has a senior pastor. It has a senior pastor. His name is Jesus. And the rest of us work for him. You're looking for a name on a sign that's gonna have some human being, we're never gonna do it. Because Jesus is the leader of the church and the rest of us just sort of are following where he goes. John the Baptist is deflective. He's dependent. He's dedicated to someone else's joy. Dedicated to someone else's joy. And in that dedication, finds joy himself at being in the proper role, the best man, the maid of honor who stands to the side and rejoices as the groom is joined with the bride. There's great joy and honor in that if you know that's your role. It's only when you think it's about you that you have to be stressed and frustrated. And then lastly, he says, I'm decreasing. I'm decreasing and I'm good with that. You know, sometimes for us, we get it jumbled up and we go, well, oh, I get it, I get it. Um, I must increase so he can increase, right? I'm gonna become the best basketball player on the team and every time I score a three-pointer, I'm gonna point at the sky. And it's not that glorifying God through making awesome baskets is a bad thing, but if we make ourselves necessary, we've missed something. It's not I must increase so he can increase, it's also not he must increase so I can increase. Sometimes we want to be at the fanciest church or we want to be at the biggest church or we want to be at the church that has the most impressive whatever. And we're not doing that because we love Jesus and we're striving to glorify him. We do it because we want people to know about how awesome our church is, right? It's not about he must increase so I can increase. It's not about I must increase so he can increase. That makes me too important. It's simply the, the way of things that he must increase and we must decrease. We, by the nature of who we are, human beings, flawed and frail, become increasingly irrelevant. And the more we try and work against that, the more frustrated we'll be. But when we can embrace the joy of the best man and go, how cool is it that I get to stand here while people meet Jesus? Then there's real joy for us in that. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, if you're, if you're in a place where you're exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus and you've never trusted in him, there is nothing more important. There is nothing more important that a human being ever does or ponders than the recognition that you cannot save yourself. The Bible teaches that we're dead and lost in our sin and Jesus loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son, excuse me, God sent his son Jesus to come to earth in the incarnation, to take the sin of the world on himself, to die in our place, and to extend to us by his grace, and his grace alone, resurrection life. If you've never put your faith in Christ today, I'd love to introduce you to him. Don't remember my name. Don't think about the things I've said. Walk across the river and meet the guy from whom real life comes, the Lord Jesus. I would encourage any of you, who've never put your faith in Jesus, that's what you need. You need him. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, 
Let's get our arms around the joy of the best man. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who sees us in our brokenness and doesn't reject us, doesn't walk away, but loves us, calls us his sons and daughters, died to save us and extends to us life that we can't achieve on our own. Thank you that we get to witness that, that we get to be a part of it and that we get to stand to the side and rejoice as others are drawn to you. Thank you for John the Baptist and his eloquence. Thank you for the ways in which that impacts our lives today. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.